This morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and through 14. So over the past few weeks, Dale has been introducing us to the letter of Ephesians, including the purpose of the letter, its historical context, and uh, Dale has covered verses 1 through 6, which include Paul's greeting to the church at Ephesus, a brief discussion of the spiritual blessings God has bestowed upon us, and a message of praise and blessing to God. This morning we'll be working through verses 3 through 14. And since Dale covered 3 through 6 last week, I won't be delving too deeply into those verses. However, verses 3 through 14 are best understood all together. And in the, in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 is all one long run-on sentence. So verses 3 through 16 are a statement of praise, a doxology, or more specifically, a eulogy. In our day, we usually associate a eulogy with funerals. Uh, and at, at funerals, a loved one may write a praise or blessing of the deceased. But a eulogy doesn't necessarily have to involve the death of the one being praised. The word eulogy just means good words. And this is actually the way Paul begins his letter. The word that he begins with is eulogitos, which means which we get our word eulogy. It's also structured like a Hebrew baraka. So in Old Testament, Jews may begin a praise, a blessing, or a prayer. Blessed be God, creator of heaven and earth. But here Paul Christianizes that concept by adding the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 3 through 14 is a blessing to God. The passage also seems to be an introduction to the rest of the letter of Ephesians, and the themes that are introduced here in this passage you'll see repeated and elaborated on through the rest of the letter. So let's read this blessing to God, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose 
him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wow. So every, every time I read that passage, I'm amazed by how just packed full of theology it is. And when first reading the passage, you just feel overwhelmed by it. You feel overwhelmed by the fullness of theology that Paul presents. And I've read this passage probably hundreds of times, but then in, in preparation for this sermon, I just felt overwhelmed. I think of a small child playing at the beach, splashing in the waves, and then that one big wave comes down and just knocks the kid over, and he just, he's all disoriented, but then you know his, his parents pick him up, and uh, then he's probably laughing. It's just overwhelmed, almost drowned by the fullness of the, of the theology, and that's the way I felt when I first uh, began to try to exegete this passage because of its fullness. But what helps me is outlining the text. And I think the text is best outlined in three main sections. The first verse serving as an introduction to the rest. So in verse 3 we have, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In this verse, we see that the primary goal is to bless, praise, and worship God. The apostle is praising God the Father for the blessings we receive in Christ through the Holy Spirit. The blessings we receive are given by the Father to those who are in Christ and the blessings are spiritual blessings, as in received through the Holy Spirit. So I think verse 3 is a good summary statement for the remaining verses, which I outlined in three sections. First, verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6, we see that God the Father is the source and origin of every blessing. He chose us to be holy and predestined us for adoption. Second section in verses 7 through 12, Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the sphere in which the divine blessing is bestowed and received. It is in Christ that we receive every spiritual blessing. In Jesus we have obtained, we, we have redemption, and we are lavished with grace, receiving wisdom and insight into the mystery of his will, and in him we've obtained an inheritance. In the third and final section, verses 13 and 14, Paul focuses on the Spirit's work in sealing us for the day of redemption. Each section, verses 4 through 6, 7 through 12, and 13 and 14, all end with a statement of praise. In verse 6, you see, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, it's to the praise of his glory. And in verse 14, Paul writes again to the praise of his glory. It's possible this eulogy would have been used in early church liturgy and, and may have been sung as a hymn with each stanza ending with a praise to his glorious grace. And I think this is a way of outlining the text that makes it more digestible. 
easier to understand. But remember, in the Greek, the whole passage is one long run-on sentence, so we should, we should understand the whole passage as one. Also, in my study, I've, I, four dominant themes came out. And I want to stress those themes. The first theme, it begins and ends with praise and worship. The apostle is blessing, praising, and worshiping God for all his blessings. Second theme, the passage is emphatically Trinitarian from beginning to end. Emphatically Trinitarian from beginning to end. From the beginning, we see all three persons of the Godhead. The passage even seems to be divided according to the work of each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, while also how they work together in perfect harmony and unity. So we know that there are different functions within the Godhead. This can be seen in the baptism of Jesus. In Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, the Father wasn't the one baptized. Jesus was baptized. And Jesus didn't descend in the form of a dove. The Holy Spirit did. And finally, it was the Father that spoke from heaven, not Jesus. Of course, it was Jesus that died on the cross for our sins, not the Father or the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 3-14, we see that the Father predestines us for adoption as sons. It is in Jesus in, in whom we have redemption, and it is the Holy Spirit who seals us. But I must stress the truth that the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit all work in perfect harmony and unity. And this is further seen in the passage, all the blessings are from the Father, they're received in Christ, and all the blessings are spiritual, as in from the Holy Spirit. Third theme, God's saving grace is past, present, and future. God's saving grace is past, present, and future. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world <clears throat> in the past. We are redeemed and forgiven of sins, given wisdom and insight. The mystery of the gospel is made known to us, and we have become an inheritance. This is in the present. All things will be summed up and united in Christ, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. This is in the future. The sealing of the Spirit is in the present, but is the guarantee of our eternal blessings that we will receive in the future. And the fourth and final theme is that it is all done in Christ. Eleven times in this passage you will see in him or in the beloved or in Christ. All the blessings are received in Christ. And I'll be saying in Christ about a thousand times during this sermon. <laughs> so I'm going to start working through the text in verse 3. I'll, I'll, I'll just reread that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is such an important theme in verses 3 through, through, through 14. In fact, the first chapter of Ephesians gives us some of the most explicit passages on the doctrine of election. And we sometimes get hung up on the doctrine of election and predestination, and sometimes we're uncomfortable with the idea of God choosing. But the words are here in the Bible, and we should seek to understand the meaning. We should also see election and predestination in this verse is said to be blessing done in love. So this is a, a, a blessing to us, and we should understand it as such, because that's, that's what the Bible calls it. As Christians, we must understand that Paul's New Testament doctrine of election is a continuation of what God has done throughout the Old Testament. In fact, election can be seen in the Old Testament in God choosing the first patriarch, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, we could read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham's home country was known for idolatry, and Abraham himself may have been an idolater. Before God called him, that is. But it's not like Abraham called on God and told him, Lord, the world is really messed up. The people are worshiping false gods. There's wars, there's famines, everything's in chaos. Perhaps, Lord, you should take me out of this land, make my name great, and bless all the families of the earth through me. No, that's not the case. It was God that called Abram. Abraham didn't first call on God. This is seen further in the choosing of Jacob and Esau, and also the choosing of Israel. We read about the choosing of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples of, who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of the, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the Lord here is clear. He chose Israel from among other nations. And his choosing was based on his love, not his love for them, not any merit in the nation of Israel, and furthermore, God chose them so that God himself might be glorified. There are many other examples in the Old Testament of God's election. It can be seen in, be seen in Moses, uh, in Noah, uh, in David, and, and others. Nevertheless, God's choice of his people today is found in Christ. But in Christ is not a national election in the case of Israel, but an international election. This was foreshadowed in the promise made to Abraham that we read earlier. All the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. 
Later in Genesis, God says the promise would come through Abraham's offspring, which Galatians makes clear was Jesus Christ. God's people in Christ are from every tribe and nation and located all over the world. The truth of God's choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world also emphasizes that our salvation is all of grace and absolutely no merit of our own. He chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless, and yet he knew that we would be unholy, undeserving, blameworthy, not deserving to be adopted, but deserving of everlasting punishment. The second chapter of Ephesians elaborates on this psalm. It reads, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, we were spiritually dead, sinful, living for the world, the, the, the devil and the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath. The doctrine of election absolutely crushes any idea of us being saved by our own merit or our righteousness or our ability to understand and see the truth. We were spiritually dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. It is in Christ and by grace that God chooses us. And I would like to mention a few objections to this truth of God choosing. Many may say, didn't I choose God? Didn't I make a decision for Christ? Absolutely yes. You indeed did choose, but only because God in eternity past chose you first. Some may also say, isn't the call of the gospel and the invitation to come to Christ available to all? Absolutely yes. Anyone willing to come to Christ is welcome to come to Christ. We see this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's whoever believes will not perish. Whoever means whoever. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Here in the same verse we have the concept of the Father giving us to Christ, and whoever comes will not be cast out. None willing to come to Christ will be cast out. There is no one that desires to come to Christ, but is prevented because they are not elect. The problem is that they are not willing. One may also object, why preach the gospel if God has predetermined in Christ those who would come? The preaching of the gospel is the means, the means by which we are called to Christ. And we are given the great commission to make the disciples of the nations. The Bible supports the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation, and the truth of human responsibility. Man is a responsible moral agent, and God is still sovereign over salvation. We choose and desire to follow Christ freely, and yet his grace is irresistible to us. One theologian wrote, Although we cannot conceive either by argument or reason how God has elected us before the creation of the world, yet we know it by his declaring it to us, and experience itself vouches for it sufficiently. 
when we are enlightened in the faith. So then God has chosen us in Christ through the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. But we are still free moral agents. We are responsible for our actions. And we are not fatalists. We do not follow Christ against our will. And there are none willing to come to Christ that are hindered from coming. God's ways are sometimes mysterious. We can't fully understand how God's election works. But I think it's best that we just trust what God has revealed to us in his word and also to see it as a great blessing because that's what this passage is calling it. It's calling it a great blessing. A final objection, and moving on in the text, one may ask, well, why live a holy life? Maybe we should just sin that grace may abound. If we are chosen, then why not just live however we want? As I already mentioned, we are responsible moral agents. And I would point to verse 4. We are chosen to be holy and blameless before him. It would be incredibly presumptuous of us to assume that we are elect so that we should continue in sin. In fact, it is likely someone with that mentality isn't in Christ at all. We are called to be holy and blameless. That doesn't mean we will achieve sinless perfection in this life, but sanctification begins when we are born again in Christ. And we will continue he will continue to sanctify us until the end. There's also an aspect of justification that we have in Christ that makes us blameless because we are justified in Christ. And let us not miss that it is in love that he has predestined us for adoption. He, pre-did, he predestined us because he loved us and he adopts us into his family. We who were sons of disobedience are now called the children of God. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, following after our own sinful passions, worshiping all of our idols instead of the one true God, we have been adopted by God into his family. That is lavished grace. In Roman law, which is the context in which Paul is writing, adopted children enjoyed the same rights and benefits as natural children It is incredible privilege to be adopted by God, and it is out of his great love for us that we are adopted. And I really want to emphasize the love of the Father in this verse and the fact that he not only desires for us to be his child, but he provides the means by which we come to him. So this passage also dispels the myth of the angry, wrathful God that only wants to destroy and punish sinners while Jesus is the loving and compassionate Savior who is always trying to temper the Father's wrath. People often characterize the God of the Old Testament as angry and wrathful while the God of the New Testament is loving and compassionate, which I always thought was odd. And and really, I think this idea is rooted in the ignorance of Scripture. Uh, Moreover, Catholics seem to have this idea of an angry, vengeful father, an apathetic son, and a more compassionate Mary. But the text here dispels that myth. It is God the Father that elects and predestines those in Christ out of love for us. This shows the amazing love God the Father has for us. The triune God works together in perfect harmony, unity, and love for our salvation. Moving into verse 7, 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here we are told we have redemption in Christ. And this word isn't used much today. You may think of redeeming credit card points or redeeming, um, like your Chick-fil-A points for a free chicken sandwich. But these, this doesn't help us much here. Um, a, a, a better idea, a closer idea, may be redeeming an item from a pawn shop. But that, that, that example still falls short. The redemption, this redemption is a word of the ancient market, marketplace, specifically the ransoming of slaves. It's the idea of purchasing or buying back someone. Slaves may have been prisoners of war or someone that had fallen into extreme poverty or debt and had to sell themselves into slavery. In the ancient world, there was no filing bankruptcy. So if one fell into a situation where their debts could not be paid, then they may be sold into slavery to pay off their debts. And this was our situation. We were slaves, enslaved to sin and death, enslaved to the current world, enslaved to the devil, utterly hopeless in and of ourselves and unable to ransom ourselves. This is why we need Christ. It is Christ who redeems us, and the payment is made in his own blood. Paul equates redemption with the forgiveness of trespasses. This word trespass is the idea of crossing a boundary. So God says, thou shalt not, and we keep breaking God's law anyway. We keep trespassing the boundary in our sinfulness. We have broken and trespassed God's law. But God is rich in grace and lavishes us with grace. He is not meager or greedy in grace, but he lavishes it on us. This is amazing grace. Adoption, redemption, and forgiveness of sins all go together. How amazing it is that we receive all these blessings in Christ and all based simply on God's love for us. We were in sinful rebellion against a holy God, and yet he redeems us forgiving our sins, and even adopting us into his family and calling us children. This is lavished grace. And imagine yourself a slave, unable to pay, ever pay a huge debt that you owe, sold into slavery and without hope. But those who are in Christ have been redeemed from slavery. Christ purchased us with his own blood. For God to be just and the justifier of sinful men, God made Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins. Jesus died the death that we deserved for our sins. Jesus, fully man and fully God, lived a perfect, sinless life that was pleasing to the Father. Jesus willingly went to the cross out of love and obedience to the Father and out of love for us, for his sheep. Jesus was beaten and nailed to the cross out of love for us. And on the cross, our sins and punishment were imputed to him. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 18 and 21 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin 
that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So then the righteousness of Jesus was imputed to us, and our sins were imputed to him. He took our punishment, and he died the death that we deserved. But we know that he defeated death, rising on the third day and ascending to the right hand of the Father. So if you are not in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and placed your hope and faith in him, I plead with you to run to Christ. God has provided reconciliation. Despite our evil and sinful desires and actions, God has lavished us with grace, redeeming us and even adopting us into his family. We were like hostile enemies of God, and yet he is rich in grace and mercy. He's not meager. He's not stingy with his grace. He lavishes us with it. Do not remain in the chains of slavery, but run to Christ for redemption and forgiveness of sins. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It, it's all in Christ's work and what he did for us. Next, we're going to move to verses 9 and 10. God lavishes us in grace, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The, this mystery that Paul speaks of, it has to do with the fulfillment of God's plan and salvation and all things being summed up in Christ. In the future, in the fullness of time, all things will be united and summed up in Christ Jesus. There is still hostility and discord in the universe, but one day this discord will cease and all things will come under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think Romans 8.22 references this so uh, i'll read that for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption of sons the redemption of our bodies in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience. All the fullness of time, at the fullness of time, all things will be united and summed up. Creation will be finally and definitely redeemed, and we will be finally and definitely redeemed when our bodies are resurrected and we are living in the presence of our Lord. The mystery is also referring to the Old Testament being revealed and fulfilled in Christ. We who are in Christ look back to the Old Testament and God's plan for the gospel all seems fairly obvious to us. But before Christ, this knowledge was hidden. But in Christ, God has made the mystery of his will known. And a major aspect of this mystery is that the Gentiles, that's us, are included in the blessing and promises of God in Christ. Paul elaborates on this in chapter 2 of this letter, but introduces the idea here. Next, Paul discusses the inheritance we have received. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. While it is true that we have a great inheritance in Christ, most scholars believe that the most accurate translation of this verse is that we who are in Christ have become God's inheritance. And this makes sense in reference to 
a few Old Testament passages. So Deuteronomy 4, 20 says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Again, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 32, God tells us, But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. And in Psalm chapter 33, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord's, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So in Christ, we have become God's precious possession and a heritage and a great uh, inheritance of his. So verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So here in verse 12, this refers to the Jews. They were the first to hope in Christ. But then in verse 13, we read, in him you also, which refers to the Ephesians, who were Gentile believers. So then both Jews and Gentiles are included in the promises and blessings of God in Christ. So this means there are no second-class citizens in Christ. There is no room in Christ for racism or any kind of racial, ethnic, or national supremacy. Believers are united in Christ as one body. Every shade of skin tone and every nationality are united in Christ. That's why we see in Revelation chapter 7, God's word tells us, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So all believers are united in Christ. We are united in him. Looking back at the verse in Ephesians, Paul addresses his letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. See, Christians are duly located. For us, we are in Christ and we're in Lake City. We have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. So we have brothers and sisters in Ukraine, and we also have brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia. Our identity in Christ is primary over all other identities. Christianity is the most inclusive religion there has ever been. All that are willing to come to Christ are welcome to come to him. Again, in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's rich and poor, white and black, immigrants, whether legal or not. Ukrainian and Russian, Chinese, Japanese, all who are willing to come are welcomed by God, and we are all united together in Christ. But Christianity is also exclusively in Christ, in Jesus. Jesus said to um, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again in the book of Acts, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So while all are invited to come to Christ, and all who are willing to come are welcomed with love, it is only and exclusively through Christ. It is only in Christ. In our current cultural context, and really the entire Western world, 
we have a crisis of identity. There's been a huge rise in people who claim to have no religious affiliation, and there is an attack on the biblical family unit. This leaves a distress of identity. Who are we? What are we? Furthermore, there is a crisis of community. People are confused and lost and have a feeling of loneliness. And we were made to be in community with others. So this leads many to find their identity in things outside of Christ. Some of these things are broken and sinful, and some of these things may be good things. Many find their identity in their work, or their nationality, or, or their ethnicity, or their socioeconomic class, or maybe even a, a disability or illness. But these things shouldn't define who we are. We are first and foremost in Christ. A few weeks ago, Dale mentioned that when we are in Christ, we no longer identify with our sins either. And this made a lot of sense in, uh, in a passage out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 9-11. through reads, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were that, but you're not that now. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You may have been these things in the past, but now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. If we are in Christ, he has forgiven us of these sins, and, and we are no longer identified by them. And I think an obvious example of searching for identity out of Christ is in the LGBT community. This is especially prominent in the younger generation. One recent survey showed that 30% of millennials and 40% of Gen Z identify as LGBTQ. That number seems high to me, but, but according to the survey, that's what was concluded. And when talking with middle and high school age kids, they tell me that LGBT identity is very prominent in that age group. There's no doubt with the prevalence of so many finding their identity in this community that many of us have loved ones who, who identify within this community. Now, first and foremost, this is sinful and a rebellion of God's law and his created order. But I think much of it is a, is, is a desire to have a sense of belonging and a sense of community. You can identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, or non-binary, the list goes on and on. In this, you receive a new identity and a new community. But the book of Ephesians is primarily about new life, a new identity, and belonging to a new community in Christ. We should not be identified by our sexuality, but, but should identify in Christ. The LGBTQ community is a false religion, a false identity, and a false hope. If you are in this community, please repent, turn away from this false religion, and turn to Christ, and you are welcomed in Christ. Repent of all your false identities. First and foremost, we're in Christ. All identities outside of Christ or elevated above your identity in Christ is sinful. So who are we in Christ? 
God's word tells us here we are blessed, we're chosen, predestined. We are being made holy and blameless. We are adopted by God. He calls us his children. We are redeemed. We're forgiven of our sins. We're lavished in the riches of his grace. We're given wisdom and insight. The mystery of the gospel is revealed to us. We've become God's own inheritance. We are united with Christ and all other believers all over the world and sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All our hope and security is found in Christ, and all the blessings of God are in Christ. Moving into verses 13 and 14, we see an example of human responsibility in salvation and the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The gospel is the means by which God uses to call the elect to himself. We must preach the gospel to the world, share it with your family, your friends, share it with your coworkers, even strangers. Evangelism is essential, and we are responsible to share the gospel. So us who believe and are in Christ, we're told we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This sealing of the Holy Spirit is the mark of authentication or ownership on us. We belong to God. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the mark of authentication in our lives that we are his. The Holy Spirit is God's promise. He is the promised one. He is the one that, deci that the disciples were told to wait for in Jerusalem. He is the one that brings all the good gifts of God. He is the one that brings us all the promises of God. And the Holy Spirit, we're told, is God's deposit. The Spirit is the deposit of all the good things that are to come in eternity. The Spirit is given as a guarantee or a pledge that God will bring us safely to our final inheritance. I found a good explanation of the Spirit as a deposit or guarantee from John Stock. He wrote, In ancient commercial transactions, it signified a first installment, deposit, down payment, pledge, that pays a part of the purchase price in advance. And so a legal claim to the article in question or makes, a valid or makes a contract valid. In this case, the guarantee is not something separate from what it guarantees, but actually the first portion of it. He then uses the example of a down payment on a house that is more than just a, a guarantee, but also the first installment of the purchase price. Stock goes on to say, so it is with the Holy Spirit. In giving him to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it, which, however, is only a small fraction of the future endowment. All right, so I want to just quickly review those four themes that I mentioned in the beginning. First, the Trinity works together in perfect unity and harmony to bring about our salvation out of love for us and for the glory of God. Second, God's saving grace is past, present, and future. As Dale said last week, Jesus was no plan B. God chose to save us in eternity past. He is saving us in the present, and he has given us the promise of eternity. Three, all the gifts and blessings of God are found in Christ. And remember the first theme, 
This is a eulogy of praise and worship. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us. He makes us holy and blameless. He has adopted us out of love for us. He has redeemed us and forgiven us of our sins. He gives us grace richly and has lavished his grace on us. He has given us insight and wisdom. He has given us new life in Christ and a new community. He has made us an inheritance and has sealed us with the Holy Spirit as a promise. So this, this should drive us to praise and worship. So we worship him by gathering together in community of the saints like we have this morning. We sing praises and worship. We study his word. We pray. We partake in the Lord's Supper. We worship in all these ways. We also bless him and praise him by how we live our lives. We are to live lives of holiness as this passage teaches and the rest of Ephesians gives us practical ways of worshiping him in our everyday lives. First, we are to be united in Christ and not to divide over ethnicity or, ethni or nationality. We are all one in Christ and are to love one another. In uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians, we are exhorted to be solid in our doctrine and to speak the truth in love. Further in chapter 4, we are told to be, not to be hard-hearted, not to be callous, and given up to sensuality, greed, or impurity, but to put on a new self. We are told to put away falsehood, to speak truth, to not steal, but labor doing honest work with our own hands so that we can share with those in need. We are not to speak corruptly or slander anyone, but to put away crude joking and all kinds of sexual immorality. We are told not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts, and always being thankful to God, and we should submit to one another. We are even told how to worship God by uh, how we conduct our families. Wives are to submit to their own husbands, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and children are to obey their parents. We're told to put on the full armor of God, to stand against the evil one in spiritual battle. This is how we should respond to the blessings we have in Christ. This is how we are to worship and honor God with our lives. Now I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O oh God, for we thank you for your word, and that we thank you for all the blessings that we have in Christ. We thank you that you're you are not just angry, but that you, you love us. That, that, that the whole Godhead is working together in our salvation. We thank you for choosing us and not letting us remain lost. We thank you for redeeming us and not letting us remain enslaved. We thank you that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit by which we are sealed and that we can just rest in Christ knowing that you will work out our salvation. Lord, I pray that you show us how to best respond to this psalm or to respond to this passage by, by worshiping you. Show us how to worship and praise you, Lord. And I pray, Father, that if, if there are any that are not in Christ and are missing out on these great spiritual blessings, that they would, that they would run to Christ where they will certainly not be cast out, but be accepted. 
I thank you, Lord. I thank you for this community of believers. I thank you for being able to worship with them every Sunday. I thank you for all the believers all over the world, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.